This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Will Ayers. Now, Will is a firearms instructor, a regional director for 5.11 Tactical and the host of their podcast, Call to Service. So we discuss a host of topics from teaching children about weapons safety, his international perspective working in Asia with 5.11, how their innovation helps the first responder in footwear and uniform and even clothing on their days off and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of fast approaching 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Will Ayers. Enjoy. Well, Will, I want to start by saying thank you so much for inviting me to yet another studio. I came to California 
never ever been recorded on video doing an interview in five years and for the second time in 24 hours i'm sitting <laughs> well it's my my pleasure i actually wish we could have been the first someone else beat us to it but i'm glad to have you here thank you well you are the first that has the majestic behind the shield logo in the background so it's a great logo too it's a great logo. I enjoy that one. Where'd you come up with it? That was all my friend Casey Allen. So he's a firefighter, but he was a graphic designer before. Um, he's done a lot of the logos for the ch the t-shirts of firefighters that we lost. I created fundraisers for. Right. And then I told him I was going to do this. And initially it was a more bland version of that. And then he did the distressed look. And it's been the same ever since. And even the shirt I just had made, it's got the same logo. So. Did a great job. Did yeah. a really great job. Kudos to him. So for people listening that aren't watching this, um, because they won't be able to, <laughs> um, where are we sitting right now? So we're sitting in Irvine, California at Sitch Radio, which is our recording studio that we partnered with for our podcast called The Service. And we're about 1.5 miles from our development center in Irvine. Beautiful. So as you know, I love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. Um, so... Born in Central California, small town called Fresno. Um, mom and dad separated relatively early, so it was a single mom story, which was great because that meant I spent a lot of time um, with my grandparents and you know friends of the family. And a lot of those individuals were military veterans, firefighters. My grandfather was a sheriff sergeant, so I, I grew up really knowing and appreciating people in the public safety sphere and uh you know graduated high school took a small stab at college and realized i wanted to make money more than i wanted to sit in school for eight to ten hours a day so i pulled the pin on that pretty quickly um and one of the other things you know growing up in a in a family with public safety is you're introduced to the firearms industry at a relatively young age and uh, there was a, a local range there in fresno that uh, we would frequent. And once I turned 18 years old, I decided I wanted to work there because I had so much fun while I was there. Um, so I started part-time, which quickly led into full-time and just thoroughly enjoyed introducing people to the firearms industry. Um, quickly became an instructor because I just love teaching people how to shoot and how to get better. And that led into the concealed weapons space. Uh, became a concealed weapons uh, instructor, did about 3,000 students a year. And I did that for 10 years and had an absolute blast. It's, it's one of those jobs that I would go back to in a minute. Uh, unfortunately, just didn't necessarily pay the bills the way that I, that I wanted to. So um, at my 10-year mark, we had actually just completed, or just before 10 years, rather, we had just completed an expansion of our shooting facility. So we built on you know, three or four more classrooms, another private range. Then we had this kind of an empty retail space that we figured we'd bring somebody in. And then by sheer coincidence, we were 5.11 dealers. We you know, wore the 5.11 uniforms. We sold the product. Uh, our 5.11 rep said, hey, listen, the company's talking about opening a, a retail location. What do you think about it being in that empty retail spot you have on the other side of the range? And that's kind of how I was introduced to the company. Beautiful. Well, I want to get into your journey. You've obviously not just been here in Southern California. You've had some pretty interesting posts with yeah. the company. Going all the way back, though, because I love to kind of really unwrap some of the early life and then see how that, that kind of pays forward. Sure. Firstly, you're obviously in good shape now. The population that you serve definitely needs to be. Um, what 
kind of athletics or sports were you playing when, when you were going through the high school age? So very obscure. I was a water polo player. Uh, I did water polo for all four years of high school. Um, and I really gravitated towards uh, the goalkeeper position. Uh, for whatever reason, you know, first of all, I didn't like swimming as much as the guys out in the field. So it was just significantly easier for me to, to tread water, but, uh, always really enjoyed that position. It's a, it's a significantly more physically demanding sport than I think most people realize. Uh, it's kind of hard to see all the work that's going on underneath the water. It's a particularly vicious sport. Uh, I was actually one of the first goalies that I met that did not have a broken nose throughout my four year career. Um, but yeah, really loved being in the pool and it gave me, you know, an excuse to be in the pool about 300 days a year. And you get to hang on the goalposts when they're not looking? When they're not looking, yes. <laughs> but if they catch you, they usually give you a hard time. <laughs> All right. Well, it's funny as well because the number of Navy SEALs specifically I had on many, many of them were water polo players. And obviously, yes, there's a swimming component. It makes somewhat sense. But, you know, there's others that have never swam before they entered the program. But sure. that did seem to be a common denominator. And I'm sure it wasn't just the aquatic ability, but, you know, it was the teamwork and the camaraderie and the, you know, the, as you said, the, the pain and discomfort that was brought with the game as well. Yeah, it was. And I, I mean, I look back at it fondly now. I didn't really at the time, but, you know, getting in the pool at, you know, 730 in the morning just to get back in the pool at, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon. It made it for some long days. But I'll tell you what, you know, team sports, in my opinion, is such a big, you know, such a big proponent when it comes to, I think, shaping who you are, learning how to work with other folks, even if you have personal differences with them. Um, so I'm, I was I was very happy to find one that worked that worked for me. I played soccer as a younger child, but I just I wasn't talented. I mean, I I played goalie in that position, but I, the chance to kind of do a version of that in the pool that was a home run for me. Now, what about the the shooting element? So, what age were you introduced to, to firearms? And then talk to me about. How do we introduce weapons or firearms to our young boys and girls? How do we train them? How do we get them to respect them? So there isn't this, I see this in so many things, alcohol and so many areas where you hold someone back and then when you let them go, they're doing, you know, handstand keg stands and, you know, buying 400 guns in the garage. You know, how do we, because it is part of our culture right now, how do we kind of on-ramp children to, to being responsible owners um, in that space? Well, I'll walk you through kind of my journey. Um, you know, obviously, as I mentioned, my folks being separated in an early age, there's a joint custody, and, and my father uh, was a firearms enthusiast. And I want to say it was three or four or five years old, he did your typical dad move. He wanted to go out and shoot at, a, at an outdoor range. And I remember the exact firearm. It was a Mini 14 by Ruger. And he asked if I wanted to shoot it, which being a kid said absolutely yes. And he did the typical dad mood. He kneeled down. He's holding the rifle. I tucked up under his arms and would press the trigger. I was in no way, shape or form in control of the firearm. But, um, you know, is that too early? Probably, you know, but again, he was in control of it. Now, the problem was when I went home and told my mother that he had taken me out shooting. That was a whole nother ordeal. So needless to say, after that, I was uh, banned from range trips for a while. But when I was 12, I ex you know, still expressed interest in wanting to you know, learn how to shoot and be involved in it. So my mom, to her credit, she said, you know what? Go do the hunter safety program. 
And I went through the hunter safety program, which at the time I want to see went for a couple hours a night for a week. You know, you're you have the firearm safety rules really drilled into your head. And, you know, the weekend after the week of training, they take you out to a live range. Twenty two rifles come out. Eye and ear protection goes on and you really, you know, you're kind of immersed in it. And I'll remember my uh, the hunter safety instructor towards the end of the day walks to his car pulls out this giant watermelon and sets it on a table and then takes his Winchester Model 12 shotgun and just obliterates it and makes the comparison of the human body is X percent water, very much like this watermelon. If you treat this as something other than, you know, something that should be very well respected, if you if you play with it, this is essentially what can happen to you. And it, honestly, that stuck with me. And then from there, once I completed hunter safety, uh, I was granted the ability to get my first BB gun, which I'm proud to say is a Red Rider BB gun. I got that on Christmas. And shortly thereafter uh, was the 22 rifle, the single shot, 20 gauge shotgun. And I think personally, and, and I'm not going to speak for, for, you know, parents out there, but I had a customer who was a judge in Fresno and we were having this very same conversation. I asked him, how do you, how do you work this with your son? He says, Will, I don't want it to be forbidden because if it's forbidden, then very much to your, you know, correlation between alcohol, no, 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 no to alcohol. Then when that 21 hits, they go nuts and because they haven't been taught how to use it responsibly. So his process was, you know, once his son was old enough and realized dad owned a firearm, he said, listen, you can take a look at the firearm anytime you want. Just come tell me. I will stop whatever I'm doing. And we will take it out. We're going to follow the rules, so on and so forth. And he said for the first couple of weeks, it was every day after school, Dad, I want to look at the gun. Dad, I want to, okay, fine. And to his credit, that's what he did. But he noticed that the two-week mark kind of fell off. So that that mystique wasn't really there. And then they would regularly go to the range. But I think it's important that, you know, children are introduced to them in a safe manner. I definitely like the parent training side of it, but I also see a lot of value in sending your children to actual courses with instructors because A, they do it for a living. B, it's important that they hear it from someone other than mom and dad because mom and dad are always the no, 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 you know, or the kind of the authority figure where I think sometimes having a third party reinforce it might click that light bulb in and say, hey, maybe mom and dad know what they're talking about. Beautiful. I love it. My son's 14 and I've been telling him we are going to shoot, but I wanted to buy a 22 to be the first one. But I think I need to look into courses as well, because the thing is, I'm not a good, you know, I'm, I'm a good gun owner as far as responsibility, but I'm not skilled. So I really have no business training my child how sure. to shoot. And that's it's a common it's a really common thing being in that industry for 10 years. I can't tell you how many fights I saw break out on the lanes because a husband is trying to teach the wife how to shoot. Oh, no, you're doing it wrong. It's like, spend the money and have a professional train your wife, you know, or or, or that, either way you want to spend that. But it's like, it's always good to hear it from an independent third party, you know. So I would highly recommend if, if uh, a husband or a wife team want to go down that road, hire an instructor. Now, another thing that I've talked about with a lot of people, Tim Kennedy obviously is very yeah. closely related to 511, um, is from English eyes, another thing that's very strange, I know 
I, I would almost correlate the people I know that have the most guns have the worst physical fitness. So what has been your lens and, and how, how can we use the firearms world to start educating people on to truly be a sheepdog? You've got to have, you know, the, the deterrent. You've got to have the presence. You've got to have the, the jujitsu or other de-escalation skills before you ever have to go to deadly, deadly force. You know, it's, it's a great question. And in the CCW space, you know, I think a lot of people get a very false sense of security because they have a firearm. And just because you have firearms doesn't even mean that you're good at shooting those firearms. But I would have them like when in our classes, we um, we spent almost no time talking about guns in the product section. It was all about less than lethal force. It was all about situational awareness. And it was all about, you know, having a flashlight with you, making sure you're carrying a pepper spray, because the only 100% way to survive a gun battle is to not be in one. And so I think, again, trying to break that, I don't know what it takes to get that mindset to switch, because you have so many people who think the gun is the solution when it's not. You know, you're the solution. You know, if you think of like Travis Haley, it's thinkers before shooters. And... I'm not entirely sure how to do it. I think, you know, one of the best things for me that I've ever done was force on force training. You know, finding a place that you can actually do simunitions, whether it is CQB in a house, whether it's role playing and how frequently you're not going to use your firearm. Um, but you know, on, in, in a, in a shoot house or in a Sims course, especially an elaborate one, where you might have to run or, or do these things. And then you see how badly your firearm skills deteriorate under physical stress, mental stress of the situation. I mean, I thought I was a really good shooter until I went and did my first Sims course. And it was a, it was a lethal force uh, simulation. I couldn't tell you. I don't think I looked at my sights once. I mashed that trigger. It was it was an eye opener, and to me, that was a pretty pivotal moment where I realized just because you have a gun, just because you're a pretty good shot on a flat range at seven yards, doesn't mean much. It really doesn't mean much, and I I completely agree with you. I think more needs to be done. I think Tim does a great job of that because, and again being kind of what I would consider Tim to be an influencer. He is the real deal. You know, he is everything that he claims to be. He's a dangerous man. He's a very dangerous <laughs> man. And I think, and I, he's also su kind of superhuman. You know, he's, he's able to do all of these things and, and that's great. I, I think he sets a great example. I would encourage people, if that's the lifestyle, if, if you want to be a part of that second amendment lifestyle and choose to get a concealed weapons permit for personal protection, you know, taking a guy like Tim and trying to and, and looking at the disciplines that he's involved in and then trying to scale it to you, to your reality, would probably be the best thing that anybody can do because it's just so well-rounded. Absolutely. Well, I took his sheepdog response course How probably was it? three years ago. Amazing. I mean, I so I have done some jujitsu. I think I was still... It was a, I think I was still white belt when I did it, or maybe just got my blue. But anyway, very intermittent training. So was good at the scrambling, good at the physical side, had the fitness, you know, wasn't bad on that end. Um, but what was an eye-opener was when they introduced weapons. You know, I remember one time, you know, we scrambled for a gun, you got shot, and then we reset. And he goes, what are you doing? And we're looking at him like, you know, what do you mean? 
<laughs> I got shot. He's like, yeah, did you die? Get back down there. And I was like, ah, oh, just because you get shot doesn't mean that you're sure. out of the fight. You don't think about that, especially I didn't subscribe to sport jujitsu very much, but some of the people in there pulling guard and, you know, it's like, and then he's sticking his thumbs in their eyes and, you know, covering their mouth and nose with his hand. And they're like, oh my God, it is completely different. The, the firearms, I'm sorry, go, please. No, I was going to, I was going to just jump on top of that. The other thing that I think is so important is the med kits, you know, yes, you're carrying a firearm. Yes, you're carrying, you know, maybe a pepper spray or a flashlight. But to your point, if you do take a round, now what are you going to do? You know, and I was speaking with uh, a gentleman who goes on, on Instagram by the name of Patient Zero. Um, and his, you know, he, he told me a story one time on a podcast about how he watched somebody who had been shot and watching the life fade out of them. And then he goes to work with a med kit that he personally purchased that the department didn't provide. And he watched that person come back to life. And when you think about that, you know, even just driving on the freeway, you are a hundred times more likely to use a med kit than you would be a firearm. But it's crazy that everybody neglects it. So again, that just made me think about, you know, getting shot uh, in, a, in a simulation. It's like, yeah, you have to be prepared for that. Absolutely. Well, I carry, I got a tourniquet in my car. I've got, you know, the mouth to mask, mask, um, Narcan that I managed to get from someone. You know, I mean, just, you don't know if you're going to be a good Samaritan and you just come across, I, mean, I want to get an AED even. Sounds mm. kind of like Rescue Randy, but sure. if you pull up on a cardiac arrest, you truly could save a life with that machine. But like you said, you know, a firearm, well, the chances of using it, and if you do, it's probably not going to be good, you know, so. Yeah, I also had a pocket doc from Dark Angel Medical on, and, and you know, he he broke it down to me uh, one time. He's like, you know, great, you have it, because tourniquets are, are very popular, as they should be right now. But his big thing was, how do you, where's your training tourniquet? I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, you need to have a training tourniquet because you need to be practicing putting this thing on and then, you know, on a as quickly as possible. But you don't want to be using the one that you carry every day. So that's the other piece is, you know, there are people such as yourself who are a skilled lifesaver because of your background. But just having the tourniquet doesn't do you a ton of good. You also have to train with that tourniquet. Um, so, again, the more we talk about this, it's like, where are we going to carry all this stuff? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so a lot of it's just in my car. Like Tim has a little fanny pack. I don't know what's in there. I'm sure there's a weapon. Probably, <laughs> knowing him. Yeah, and then, you know, other stuff. But yeah, I mean, if it's not on you, having it close, it's the next. But like you said, scaling it, like, how can I do this? I live in board shorts. I'm not going to be carrying a weapon on right. my, you know, appendix. But there's going to be one in my safe in my house or one in my car, you know, wherever I am at that moment. But with the, the firearms element of Sheepdog, um, was also amazing because you start off like you would in any range, you know, static firing. And, you know, I'm, I'm such a noob that I borrowed someone's gun. I didn't even have a holster for the clips. So, uh, for the, uh, there's a clip in the magazine. magazine. Magazine, yeah. See, even there, there we no go. Worries. I rest my case. They're in my pocket. So as we're doing, you know, tactical reloads, I'm pulling it out and it's getting stuck on the sure. lining. And <laughs> so, but now since then, I've bought Glock 19. I've got, you know, an actual, um, you know, case for those that I can draw from. But, so, you know, you kind of not humiliated, but you realize where you're at. But then, so I'm still trying to hit something that's not moving. 
but then you start moving yourself. You do a bunch of burpees and sprints and then you do it. So then as you go back to what we were talking about a second ago, you look at law enforcement, mm -hmm. you know, then so many of these departments that just qualify once, twice a year, six rounds, um, you know, and then so many of the, the guests I've had on from the law enforcement world that are in great shape, that are also jujitsu, you know, purple, brown, black belts. They are the ones that don't have many hands-on stories because or you know lethal weapon stories because they don't have to just when they walk in you see tim kennedy you're like all right where do you want me to put the handcuffs here exactly. is, this, is this good for you sure you know but you see some of these sadly some of these deconditioned officers you know they're going to be a target for someone who's preying on them and then their only go-to really is lethal force so it, it's not just civilians it's all of us including in uniform the more non-lethal tools we have on our tool belt the lower chance there is of us having to use their weapon yeah and i think i think you hit the nail on the head with that you know the toolbox is is so important because the last thing any officer out there wants to do is have to be involved in a lethal force encounter i mean it's it's such an experience uh professionally personally and if there's ways to avoid it um then absolutely we should be looking for the but a lot of those a lot of those additional tools, whether it is jujitsu, uh, whatever the case may be, they have to do on their own a lot of the time, you know, that, and that's why, you know, when, when people get on this defund the police, it's like, you have to remember the first thing that's always cut is a training budget, you know, and, and if you're looking at a law enforcement officer as a product, you know, the more training they can get, the better product we're going to have. Again, we're adding those tools. But if training budgets get cut and, you know, there is no more defensive tactics time and training and there is no more less than lethal time and training and investment, you're, you're not going to have as good of a quality product as you really want in your community. So it just makes no sense to me. Absolutely. And even with, with staffing, one thing that's blown me away is one to a car. Yeah. Like you want to set someone up for failure, send a single person to a domestic violence call to pull over a car with the windows tinted, you know, and that's the thing. So at that point, what is your, your option? You, you're going to draw a lot of times versus you have partner one covering you, partner two, and, you know, maybe someone with bad intentions looks and goes, okay, this is going to end in me dying. There's, sure. there's, you know, very, very high risk for me one on one, but they've got the jump on you because they can't see through the window or you're twice the size of the officer that got out. It's a different thing. Completely so when you agree. defund, again, you increase the likelihood of someone having a hair trigger. Totally agree. Totally agree. I think partners, if possible, is the way to go. Absolutely. Well, so 511 moves next door to your range. Mm -hmm. So firstly, talk to me, before you even with the company, what was it that you guys liked about their stuff back then? So, yeah, it was, um, you know, being... A, a, a retailer of firearms and equipment, you know, we were relatively agnostic when it came to what brands we wanted to try. And we tried all types of brands. And I'm, and I'm saying just for daily uniforms, you know, the owner didn't want us in blue jeans. So, you know, we kind of gravitated towards, at the time, it was the 511 Tac Light Pro Pant. Um, reason A, we were dealers of them, but we were also dealers of a lot of the competitive products as well. Um, great price, great quality. And a lot of attention to detail, which I would learn, obviously, once they got hired. But, you know, we were sick and tired of, you know, wearing a pair of pants. You know, all of us carried a pocket knife at the time. And, you know, within about three months of, say, a competitive product, the pocket corners of our pockets would be completely chewed up because we're 
pulling that pocket knife in and out every day or a flashlight on the support side. And it, they just didn't hold up. Well, we're kind of looking at the 511, the Taclite Pros, and there's nylon Cordura on every pocket corner because they realized that that was a high abrasion uh, location. So little things like that. Um, and then how long they lasted uh, compared to some of the other things that we were trying at the time. Uh, the polo shirts were a big deal. You know, we would buy the polo shirts, have them embroidered with our logos. But the problem with a lot of knit polos in the market, if you get near hook and loop or Velcro, I mean, it'll pill that that shirt and you just can't fix it. And, and now it's, again, not professional looking to wear to work. We ran across the 511 Performance Polos, uh, which is still our number one selling polo in the company, because, you know, because of that. And it just it was extraordinarily functional at a reasonable price. Um, and then, you know, for the CCW market, there was lots of great products at the time. You know, there were button down shirts that were, you know, it looked like it had a, a traditional loop button, but it was actually a snap placket. So if you had to rip the shirt away to expose an appendix carry or, you know, three o'clock carry, uh, it was extraordinarily popular and great nylon gear. I, I think I still have the same Rush 24 from about 15 years ago. Uh, it just, it held up really well. And, and then when the store was per, where the store was built next door, I had a chance to start interacting with a lot more of the senior leadership to include uh, our co-founder and, and CEO Francisco Morales. Really enjoy him, and I just I liked I liked the idea of spending five to six days a week doing nothing other than going out and talking to members of public safety and seeing if there was a product solution that I could help them solve. So that's when I heard that they were looking for a territory manager. And uh, I went and did a ride along with uh, with one of their guys at the time and got the call and said, hey, do you want to join the team? And I abruptly said, yes, I do. Yeah, it's, it's good to hear because when when I first came across you guys it was for Anaheim. I'm just here visiting, you know, my old truck partner and he's actually in your catalog. Nice. He's, he's in, in the HQ. He's the one climbing the fire ladder. Nice. That's, that's uh, Richard. Um, and, you know, we got your jackets, we got your uniforms and, you know, I didn't have a whole lot to compare it with then. That was only my second fire department. The first one I wasn't even with for a year. So I didn't really get the wear and tear sure. window. But after when I left and, you know, the first one was just kind of super generic, um, Nomex uniform. Second one <laughs> protected a famous theme park and they rented their firefighters uniform from Sintas. Really? Yeah. Hmm. So you had a little barcode on every pair of pants sure. and horrendous, faded and just, yeah. you know, the worst impression for the public ever. So then I really was like, oh, okay. And then I circle around kind of close to when we start um, having our partnership. And then you know, my friend's telling me, yeah, I still wear that 511 job shirt that we bought when you were still at Anaheim and, you know, the, the jackets. And, and then um, that last department ended up going to the polos. Mm -hmm. So we had 511 polos, which was amazing. I know... Um, you know, Marion County where I live, Orange County where I used to work, they all turn to them. So before we kind of get into the, the, the Asian chapter of your story, what kind of with the first responder community, what were some of the innovations that you started bringing that maybe were different than other companies that were out there? Sure. So yeah, we'll, we'll stick with Polos, for example. You know, um, long, as I understand it, 511 was the first company to actually manufacture a polo shirt 
specifically for the uniform or for the public safety market. Uh, I'm not saying that a cop had never worn a polo before 5'11", but I do know at the time there was not polos specifically made for public safety. So if you take, um, you know, our performance polo. So we knew that we wanted to create a product that was significantly more durable and again, find those little attention to detail things that made sense for a public safety professional. So if you look at a polo shirt, traditionally polo shirts are leisure wear. It's stuff you wear on the golf course and, and so on. But if it's going to live in public safety as a uniform, it needs to be treated the exact same way as a set of class A's or a set of class B's. It is a uniform just because it's a polo. It's still a uniform. What I mean by that is it has to be neat, clean and professional. And, you know, if you look at polo shirts in the consumer space, it was not very common to have the buttons the same color as the actual fabric. They were usually off by so that takes away from that uniform appearance. So, you know, 5.11 did the work and they sourced melamine buttons. Why is that so important? You know, because they don't melt, chip or crack and we can color match them to the same color as the fabric of the shirt. Uh, taking into consideration, you know, I think anybody who's worn polo shirts, you wear them over time, the little corners of the collar start to roll up over time. You know, all of ours are constructed to make sure that that never happens, whether it's with a built-in collar stay or the actual weave that's woven into the collar of the shirt. Um, you know, obviously a law enforcement officer, if they're in a pol they still have to carry a pen. And so law enforcement officers, you know, everybody has a bad habit of just sliding that pin right on the placket where the buttons are. Well, what happens if you're in a, you know, a fight with somebody and that now you have that hard metal pin against your chest, you get thrown to the ground or it's taken away from you or you're in a traffic collision. That pen is essentially a stabbing implement. Guess what? Right over your heart. So we decided, hey, you know, let's prevent the pins from going there by putting in an actual dedicated pin pockets on the left sleeve of the of the shirt. Uh, and then other simple things, you know, if you're wearing a polo as a uniform, you still have to look presentable. Well, the challenge with a lot of polos that were available at the market is when you would raise your arm above your shoulders, it would put so much stress on the bottom of the shirt that's tucked into the pant that your shirt would become untucked. Well, all we had to do is build a little gusset under there, which guess what also made it really comfortable to wear over body armor. And we eliminate that possibility. So when I, when I started seeing how much thought and time and effort that 5.11 put into something as basic as a polo, but the thing is they weren't doing it on their own. You know, they didn't identify all those problems. They collaborated with people in the field with public safety professionals and say, hey, what can we do to make a polo an actual uniform? And that's what they brought to market. Well, another area that, you know, I can, in my mind's eye, see some of my fellow sister firefighters with these shirts and all this freaking extra material hanging out left, right, sure. and center. You wouldn't think it would be rocket science to realize that you probably need a different uniform for a female firefighter or police officer, but that wasn't really out in the space. So again, talk to me about that. You know, what spurred that and kind of what are the differences now between some of the different, you know, male and female uniforms sure. out there? Yeah, I think what's what's really driven it, especially in the last 10 to 15 years, if we have significantly more women in law enforcement and public safety than we had, you know, 20 to 30 years ago, you know, 20 to 30 years ago, there were a lot of 
uh, uniform manufacturers who did not make women's. They would say, hey, just uh, buy one size smaller than what the guys wear or go to the uniform shop and have it tailored. And that's that's a real challenge for the female officers because a uniform, it's not just a shirt and a pant. It is a piece of equipment. And if that piece of equipment restricts you from climbing, jumping, fighting, whatever the case may be, that really could be, you know, the difference between surviving a violent confrontation and not because you can't have that uniform working against you. So the more women and when 511 got into this, we realized right away we have to build for these female officers because these poor female officers have been forced to wear products that weren't built for them. And let's face it, men and women are just built differently. And with that said, we felt a responsibility to, you know, anything that we're going to do in the uniform space. We want to make sure to include the, the, the women officers, the female officers, even though we know there's not as many, but the number is growing, which is great. But for us, it's, it's also, it's a business decision. You know, we want to make sure if I'm going to go in and sell LAPD a uniform, I want to make sure I have men's and women's that I'm not telling the women, hey, I'll tough it out or get it tailored because that's just not right. I mean, if you if you truly care about public safety, it's all of public safety and you have to go all in, which means as a manufacturer, you might be stocking more inventory. But you know what? You are going to have happy customers. And I will say our female products that we build, they are designed by women and they are produced by women. So, and we field test everything before we go to market. And we, on a regular basis, have product development meetings specifically for women's products. Like, okay, we think we got your uniform squared away. What else do you need to make your job a little easier? You know, and if that means we're talking to a detective who's not wearing Class B patrol uniforms and they say, I would love a straight leg pant that looks like a slack that you would get for Macy's but was built to carry my gun belt because let's face it, your average pair of pants out there in a men's warehouse, those belt loops are kind of for show as opposed to ours. We know who our customer is. Every single belt loop is reinforced with what we call bar tack stitching because we know the end users probably putting about eight pounds of gear on that belt. So that's that really great piece where, you know, if we take the time, we sit down with the intended customer, men, women, SWAT, patrol, motors, whatever the case may be, we ask the questions. I think the worst thing that that can happen in this space sometimes is a manufacturer assuming what their customer wants. We don't like to assume. We just ask. And, you know, over the last, you know, 15, 20 years, we've developed that relationship where we have agencies hey, we, we really have a great idea. Let's talk about it. And that's exactly what we do. Yeah, it reminds me as well, a couple of places I've worked, you know, you go in, you try on clothes that were kind of your fit-ish and they'll be like, all right, they'll be ready in two months. I'm like, okay, so I just go back to what I was wearing. Right. Versus you actually have clothes as you would in a regular store. Okay, I'm a medium this, I'm, you know, this, I'm a very unusual thing. I'm a 30 inch waist and like a 33 leg. Mm. But when you have all these different cuts and fits in stock for people, they can go in, they can get the stuff and they can just leave. And they might have to be, you know, wait for embroidery for your name or a patch put on, but that's it. And so, yeah, by having the right fit for the right people that are going to walk through the door, you're eliminating. You shouldn't have to do all these adjustments and, you know, tailoring if you just have 
uh, a range of, of sizes that would actually fit whoever walked through the door. Unless you want a medium bodybuilder guy, right? And there's no way around that. <laughs> yeah, and we and we do the we do the absolute best we can. I mean, obviously not not everything is going to work for everybody, but we really try and pressure test these because ultimately, you know, it doesn't matter to us where you get your gear. I just want to make sure that you're having a good interaction with that equipment. You know, you're the one who's going to be wearing it five days a week. That's what our primary focus is. And I'm proud to say that we we take the time to do that. Absolutely. Well, and then, like I said, I pursued you guys as a sponsor because I'd worn your stuff for sure. over a decade. So um, you have a very interesting journey after starting with 511 it took you to asia so let's talk about that and then sure. and then you know the the tactical population in some of these countries yeah um so started in the central valley of california um and then about two years in i was asked to apply for a southern california uh territory manager position which i jumped at and they said somewhere we want you to be somewhere between orange county and san diego and i said no problem and so uh my significant other and i quickly packed up and uh, moved down to Carlsbad, California, which is a beautiful place out around the beach. Uh, we stayed there for about two years. And then right around my two-year mark, I got an email from one of the directors within our organization, who I didn't know very well, uh, by the name of Brian Tripp, who was covering the East Coast at the time, and asked if I would be willing to meet him at the office for a, a quick meet and greet. And I said, sure. So we start chatting a little bit, and lo and behold, he had just accepted a position to run all of Asia Pacific and was wondering if I would be interested in going over there uh, to be based out of our Hong Kong office to work with the sales team. And, you know, I don't think I had really left the country prior to that. And I was, I said, yeah, let me take it into, take it into consideration and got in the car and uh, went home, spoke with Amanda, my, uh, my significant other. And I said, can you believe this guy thinks I'm going to go over it. We're going to go over and live in Hong Kong. And she says, absolutely, we have to do it. And I was like, you're out of your mind, woman. <laughs> so we, needless to say, we talked quite a bit about it. She had previously lived overseas, uh, studied abroad during college, um, and basically just said, you need to quit being a sissy and take this into under serious consideration. And so I circled back with uh, my boss and said, hey, um, I'm interested but cautious. He said, no problem. Let me send you over there, meet some folks in the office, uh, do a little bit of travel, and make your decision afterwards. And I said, okay. So hopped a plane to Hong Kong, uh, met with the folks at our office, uh, explored the city. And by the time I got home, um, I sat with a man and I said, I, I think we can do this because it was just such a positive experience. I had never really been in a big city before, like big, big city, millions and millions of people, um, and just really liked it. I liked the folks over there with our team. And so we signed a contract to go for 12 to 18 months and came home about four years later. Well, you, before we started recording, you told me about some of the different countries and one that was fascinating was Mongolia. Oh. So I, I used to do stunts in a pirate show and there was a guy, Tuxu, who was Mongolian. He was actually a ballet dancer, mm. but he was amazing, you know, at the sword fights and stuff. So talk to me about some of the, the, the best tactical populations out there. And then, you know, as, as we touched upon before, being appreciative of what we have here, seeing maybe some of the darker side of some of these teams as well. Sure. Yeah, I was I was actually very curious that same that same thought when I moved to 
when we were talking about moving to Asia, I was starting to think, you know, obviously, okay, it makes sense that law enforcement would be maybe seeking, you know, 511 uniforms, but the greater population. And, and when I when I first got to Hong Kong, I realized very quickly, you know, obviously there is no CCW community. You're not even really allowed to carry a pocket knife in the city. But surprisingly enough, there was a following of all things tactical. And a lot of it lived in the airsoft space, um, which is fine. Younger kids, and they really, it's so funny. Every country that I've been to, for the most part, really looks to the United States as the as the leader in public safety equipment. So it's not uncommon to walk in and see 511 next to Blackhawk, next to, you know, kind of the bigger names of the industry. But it's so funny that the vast majority of it's driven from the U.S. Um, and then there are some countries where there is that Second Amendment. Well, it's not Second Amendment there. It's Second Amendment to me. But that gun culture. So, you know, every year when I was there in the Philippines, we partnered up with our, our dealers down there and held a 511 challenge, which was either going to be an IDPA or an IPSC shoot. And we would have hundreds of people show up to that. And we actually took that same model and replicated it in Mongolia. And once a year, we would do a shooting competition one day for the law enforcement and military guys, and then one day for the IPSC groups. And um, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed Mongolia. The, the people there are amazing, uh, very family oriented, very in, you know, family oriented, very proud people, but just don't take crap from anybody. And I was out, obviously, one night with the Mongolians. Be very careful when you go out drinking with those guys because they, <laughs> they are world-class drinkers. And I said, you know, you guys are just – you have the Mongolian wrestling. You have the archery. You have, you know, the shooting that we do here. It's like, you guys are a true warrior culture. And they're like, obviously, Genghis Khan is sitting, uh, you know, in the, in the town square. But they said, Will, you know, we have to maintain a level of preparation – and level of readiness, he's like, look where we are. We are smack dab in the middle of, in between China and Russia. So if there's a war that's going to be fought between those two countries, they're fighting that war in Mongolia. And those people have that mindset. And I just really enjoyed them. It was great. As opposed to, you know, another one of my favorite countries to visit over there was Japan. But, you know, obviously Japan's military, the Japanese self-defense force, you know, they're uh, they're really great folks, really great individuals, but at the same time, not the most active compared to say like U.S. special operations or other other countries in the U.K. But their law enforcement, there's not enough crime there. You know, there's very little crime in Japan. So you see, you know, these officers walking around in in you know 100% polyester bell bottom looking pants, um, but they've never really needed to innovate. You know, so it was just amazing. Uh, to see how 511, you know, was received in all of these different countries and cultures, uh, you know, all the way to Nepal. I never thought we'd be doing 511 business in Nepal, and we surely did. So it was great. And then to your point on law enforcement, it gave me my, my time in Asia gave me a chance to see how law enforcement and public safety operate differently than the United States. And some people, some of the countries that are fantastic, great officers, very diverse in places like Malaysia and things like that. But in other, you know, you know, other developing countries, law enforcement can be treated as a business. And there is levels of corruption that are out there and, and, and 
levels of politics that I did not see here in the United States. Every now, every once in a blue moon, you hear about some police corruption scandal. It doesn't happen very often, um, but it was almost like a way of life in some countries over there. And, you know, I would tell my friends we would come home once a year to visit. It's just so different. It's just so different. You know, the the amount of you know, training that our law enforcement officers can receive and equipment compared to I could be standing in Cebu in the Philippines looking at a hammered down 1911 sitting in an officer's holster and I'm trying to see where there wasn't rust on the gun, you know, or it's just it's it's it was a great experience to just be exposed to that. And I tell you, my four years over there made me really appreciate the public safety professionals that we have here in the United States. I mean, we are, uh, we are, we are a different, a different beast when it comes to that. And I'm, I'm very proud of them. Yeah. We have, I mean, you know, obviously I'm proud as well. I do in the podcast, yeah. you know, and of course we all have the turds. I mean, every profession does, but, uh, you know, the other 90, whatever percent are amazing people that leave their families to go protect strangers. Sure. You talked about some countries in that area having a similar kind of Second Amendment element. Mm -hmm. Were there any things that you saw culturally in those countries that maybe created less violence on the streets, less violence in the school? Because, I mean, there's always that freaking knockdown, drag out, fight over gun you know, ownership. And yeah. I'm very in the middle of the road right now. Everyone has them. You know, I'm not going to just throw mine away. Right. But then when I go to Gander Mountain... I find it kind of disgusting that as an eight-year-old playing with a 50 cal. Sure. Not sure how that factors into home defense, sure. i got to say. Um, so, you know, but then obviously there, there are so many layers to it, the mental health and all that stuff. But there are a lot of other countries, Norway, for example, that have a lot of guns that don't have this violence on the street. They don't have the violence in the school. So were there any cultural aha moments that maybe there was a something about a culture overseas that you thought, ah, maybe this is a missing link here in the U.S.? <sighs> yes and no. So we'll use Mongolia again as an example. You know, they, it's a it's very small population, 3 million people in the entire country, and 1.5 million of which live in the capital city of Ulaanbaatar. Um, and that they, to me, really embrace that warrior culture and, you know, again, the kids grow up wrestling. And the, the one thing I did notice there, the family unit was very, very strong. You don't see a lot of, you know, men walking down the street without their wife and children with them. And I think that's kind of bred into into that population. Um, so I think that had a lot to do with it. And the firearms industry, it's very young there. They're just starting to, you know, think about, should we make some gun laws? I mean, when I was there the first time, uh, we went to go run a course of fire with uh, one of the law enforcement agencies, and they handed me an AK, and this was a, a no BS, a 1976 stamped Russian AK. So they don't have a whole lot of importation. They're making, they're carrying the Makarov pistols from, you know, way back. But it's just starting to emerge, and what I love about the shooting sports community there is very similar to the shooting sports community in the United States. It's bringing these people from all walks of life together. And it doesn't matter if you are a garbage man or a lawyer, you just have a number on your back and you're waiting for that shot timer to go off so you can get to work. I love seeing that. I really do. Um, the opposite of that, 
is another, there's not very many countries in Asia that allow private firearms ownership. Um, but a, another one that did was the Philippines. So you look at the Philippines and there is that shooting sports community and it's really great, but you also have tremendous levels of crime in the Philippines due to the fact that it's still an, you know, it's still a developing nation. It's a very poor population. Um, they've had their, their issues with drugs down there. They've had their issues with corruption down there. Sorry. Yeah. And a lot of terrorism, we start getting down in the South. So it's, it's interesting, you know, the one place that there's two places, but one where I think is is worth noting, if you look at Korea, so you have this country where it's mandatory military participation. I think it's a minimum of two years. Um, they are sitting, you know, within striking distance of North Korea, who, you know, obviously can be <laughs> problematic to put it lightly. And they're living in the shadow of this and they walk around. No big deal. I've, I've talked to my, I've been to Korea several times. We have a, a great, great territory manager uh, by the name of Sean Park who runs that business for us. And even when things were escalating a couple of years back, um, I said, Sean, are you worried? He's like, no, nah, this has been going on our entire life. You know, so it's a, it's a culture that's extraordinarily proud who's living in the shadow of one of what could be considered one of the larger threats in the world. And for whatever reason, they are just cool as a cucumber, uh, very low crime, wonderful place to visit. So that those are some of the main cultural takeaways um, that, that with regards to public safety from my time over there. Beautiful. Now, where is 5.11 in the UK? Um, with regards to the different... The stores. That I'm not sure of. I haven't had a chance to to be over there and that uh, the European team run a little bit differently than we do here. But for the listeners who are curious, just go to 511.com. We have a dealer locator and that'll show uh, our dealers all over the globe with regards to our offices. You know, obviously we're Southern California based here. Uh, we have an office in Malmo, Sweden, office in Dubai, obviously an office in Hong Kong, Sydney, Australia, and uh, Mexico City. So we're kind of dropped it a little bit everywhere. Yeah, because I lived in Japan for a while. So yeah, I mean, it was, I hardly ever saw any crime. I had a little interaction with what was supposed to be a Yakuza member. Sure. Um, but I was uh, in a dance club, so I was happy no matter what happened. Sure. That's all I say about that. Um, <laughs> but when you think of the gun culture in the UK, I had a gun, I grew up on a farm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there isn't that. So the the tactical element, you know, the, one of my friends, um, is part of the armed police in, in London. Okay. And uh, that's his world. But the rest, you know, the other 99% don't really have that so much. So I'm kind of curious to how 511 is received in there, although the, the, the demand element, because here there is such a culture. We just had SHOT Show, you know, it's a very, right. you can be, you know, middle of North Dakota, nothing to do with the military police fire and still love the brand, still love to shoot, you know. So I'm just, I wonder how, how the dynamic is in, in Europe or in the UK specifically when we have you know, very, very tough gun laws. And usually if you've got a gun, you're either hunting or a farmer or you're a member of a pistol club and that stays in there. Sure. I know a, a lot of a lot of the stuff that I did internationally, you know. The primary focus would be on selling to who we could, you know, selling to the public safety professionals. Um, but there were. Some uh, there were some countries uh, that 
almost viewed and utilized the 511 brand as a fashion piece. You know, so in Taiwan, you know, there is this, it's in Taipei. I can't remember the exact neighborhood of Taipei, but we have a really great dealer there down this really nice kind of manicured uh, boulevard area where you'll see, you know, fashion brands and Japanese denim jeans selling for $300. And there's 511. And there are people in Taiwan who look at 511 as a fashion brand. And that's okay. Because if, I don't know, the last time you looked at a 511 catalog, there's a lot of product in there. And and we, we've started building for what I call after hours. You know, so if, if we have a customer who's a law enforcement officer who wears a 511 uniform, um, you know, five days a week, and if he if he's going to go buy a pair of jeans, we hope that he would take consideration like the 511 jeans versus a set of jeans from Levi's. And the reason I say that is Levi's builds great jeans, but did they build them for a public safety professional with their needs in mind? The answer is no. Did we? The answer is yes. I'm wearing them. So, <laughs> so there it's, we go. <laughs> it's one of those. So if I, if I think about my customers and, you know, 70% of their closet is what they wear five days a week to work, there's 30% left. And if they are, you know, happy with the pro- the manufacturing and, and the performance of our products, let's give them more options. Let's give them something great to wear out with the wife and kids on a Saturday, you know, at the beach or, or out to a dinner or whatever the case. So, you know, there are legit fashion pieces in the 511 portfolio. The key difference is the eyeball's never been taken off of who we want to be wearing them. And that's that public safety person. Now, again... A graphic T-shirt's a graphic T-shirt, you know, but when we're talking about, you know, serious pieces of, you know, clothing, jeans, jackets, um, shorts, even shoes, we want to make sure that we always stay focused on would this work for our public safety professional? And if the answer is yes, it's like, okay, let's let's take a swing. Mm -hmm. Well, and what really kind of did it for me, like you said, the longevity piece, like I, I watched a documentary a while ago now, it was on the waste the, the waste we create by disposable clothes. You know, I mean, obviously, tends to be more women than men that will only wear something white uh, once, but, you know, a lot of our clothes aren't meant to last very long. I would rather pay, you know, more and have something that I keep using again and again. And then the other pieces, you know, I do train, even I'm not very good with, you know, with a weapon. I've done martial arts my whole life. You know, I might have to run towards God knows what or climb through a window or whatever. I don't want my shoes, my jeans to stop me being a sheepdog in the community and having that moment where I might be able to save a life, but I end up braining my face because I try and leap a fence and my jeans get caught, Sure, you know? So it's it sounds, again, kind of rescue Randy, but I'm thinking that. If there's a moment where I might have to protect my family, I'm not talking about wearing neoprene every, everywhere I go, right? but I want to have something that's not going to, as you said, make it harder to do what you do. And if it's comfortable and if I can squat down and, you know, just move like a normal human in clothes that also look, you know, smart enough to go out and go get get dinner. That you know, that was it. So, I wear a lot of Five Eleven stuff, not because Five Eleven sponsors a podcast, but again, prior to that, I was like, my old jeans were awesome, but I couldn't squat down in them. You know, I couldn't run in them. My, you know, the the uh, the shorts. I forget the name now. The super light shorts that you guys have. Probably tack light shorts. Yeah, I, I live in Florida. Yeah, I can get sweaty. I can, you know jump in a pool, whatever, and then five minutes later, they're bone dry again. So these are just, you know, real world 
applicants and you know why not look at what you buy some of the stuff you absolutely stay with i mean I'm, we don't make suits for example so sure. you know i'd love to get a comfortable kind of functional suit um but there's other areas that you live in whether it's shorts and shirts and jeans and, and shoes even where it might just be a better option for you to possibly have to use your physicality when you're not wearing a uniform for sure and it's we look at it again as you know we want to be there for our customer in every in every you know possible facet and you know there was a period of time where you we would you know you see it at shot show a lot you know the khaki 511s and the polo it almost became a hey i'm associated with the firearms industry uh you know we even had jokes going around people calling them the shoot me first pant because i'm obviously a cop <laughs> you're wearing that style of pant yeah, tactical exactly and it's like okay you people want to wear that those great you know we, we appreciate it but we also realized you know if we truly are going to be all in with our core customer well, that is public safety we do have to build stuff a significantly more low viz, but still add functionality. As soon as it's not functional, now it's just a, a name brand. But functionality for us, the product longevity, that's what's, that's what's key. That's what's really key for us. Well, another area that I've had guests on, I've had podiatrists, I've had you know, a lot of movement specialists, is footwear. So I spend a lot of time and I get to now I'm off. I'm not on shift anymore. I spend so much time barefoot. I think, you know, that's what we were. No one can argue that we were, you know, barefoot foot generations ago. But being in the fire service, some of these like clumpy, you know, steel lined, steel toed boots that we're wearing to run EMS calls in the middle of an urban sprawl. It's just insanity and people have the knee issues and, you know, the, the ankle mobility goes and the back issues. Even my little boy, he's in JROTC. There's like lead plates strapped to those poor kids' feet so they're shiny. So I've been a huge, you know, um, advocate for trying to find as close to minimal as you can, light, still having the protection, obviously, for puncture and sure. biohazards, but making them as pliable and flexible as light as possible because, again... If I've got to chase someone or run from something in, you know, these old lace-up boots, I'm I'm going to be worse. Yeah. It's going to diminish my performance. If then I'm going into what we call IDLH atmosphere, whether it's on a construction site to get a, a worker or whether it's in a traffic accident or in a fire, I have boots for that. They're in with my bunker boots. Right. For my EMS day-to-day -day stuff, we should be in something super light. So, you know, obviously we've got the Norris, we've got some other shoes. So talk to me about you know, the, the kind of path that you found in the, the footwear, whether it was military and police fire, and, you know, some of the options that people have now that are moving the needle on not only foot health, but overall body health. Yeah, it was when 5.11 made the decision to get into the footwear business, they were talking with firefighters and law enforcement officers saying, hey, listen, our boots are extremely heavy. They take a very, very long time to break in, but they last forever. Okay. And they're never as comfortable as, you know, the Nikes that they wear on the weekend. So that was kind of the, the starting point. It's like, okay. And the best way it's been explained to me is you want the performance. You got to do the homework. And so I look at footwear for individuals the same way I look at tires. Could you create a tire out of solid rubber that's going to last for 200,000 miles? Uh, sure you can. You're going to hate getting in that car, <laughs> you know, or you could get a performance tire that will give you a solid 
couple of years of performance, but you are going to be comfortable every single day. And that is where I really see kind of the 511 footwear. It, you know, we utilize some real, we have a great footwear team, first of all, with Brendan and Jared kind of spearing that up. Uh, but these guys are dedicated to performance, 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 and longevity. We want to squeeze as much mileage out of that tire as we can, but not to the detriment of what that individual can do. And that's why even on like something like what I'm wearing, the Norris, it's not designed to be a duty shoe, but we still have a Vibram outsole on it because I, to your point, you never know when you're wearing this off duty and you have to go run and chase somebody down. But even if you look at, you know, some of our core boots called like the ATAC 2.0s or the ATAC Shield is a great example. It looks very similar to any other eight inch black leather boot, but every effort has been expelled trying to make that boot as comfortable and lightweight as possible. You know, so we will build it essentially like a performance shoe, but disguised as an eight inch black leather boot with a polishable toe. But guess what? That polishable toe underneath it is a carbon tack, carbon fiber safety toe. So it doesn't need to be steel because there's inherent dangers in steel. Meaning if that fire engine rolls over that foot and you have a steel toe, it is going to bend that steel toe in your boot sever your toes and guess what the doctor's not going to be able to peel that steel back to get your toes out of there so having that carbon tack toe which will you know give you all the protection that you need but crumble should uh, uh, complete uh, failure occur past the safety standards all right at least your toes will be flat but this will be there uh, same thing with puncture resistance and we also know especially in the fire and paramedic space um we use waterborne, bloodborne, pathogen-resistant membranes on a lot of that footwear because we understand, you know, your day can go from good to bad really quickly, and who knows what you'll be standing in. And so we want to take that into consideration. So a tremendous amount of work goes into our footwear from our footwear team who are very, very talented. And you're right. We want to, we want to service that public safety professional for his work job or his, his everyday line of work. But at the same time, why not build him something for the weekends or her something for the weekends? We know he's going to the gym. Why don't we build him a workout shoe that is specifically designed for this person? We know that when a law enforcement officer walks in for work weighing 200 pounds, by the time they walk out the door to get in the squad car, they're probably closer to about 220 pounds because of all that equipment that they're carrying, gun belt, armor. So, if we know that, why don't we build a piece of footwear with a platform specifically to take that into consideration? And and really, again, it's that time we spend with that end user that allows us the ability to innovate because they know everything we don't know, and we're going to take that information and build great products. And again, I can attest, I mean, I've got to try a few, the Atlas shoe, yep. the Norris. And it's funny, the Norris actually was, here's an irony, the Norris was too narrow mm. because when I stopped wearing duty boots, my feet flattened out. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. So, but that being said, my stepson, who's a tra uh, apprentice mechanic, so he's on his feet all day doing brakes and tires and everything. He loves those things. So I, so he wears a hell of them. His, his foot is a different shape. Sure. And I talked to the team actually about, you know, a wide option for that particular one. Which I believe is coming, if I'm not mistaken. Perfect. Yeah. So then you have the Atlas, which obviously, you know, uh, 
spreads the pressure out underneath. Correct. But what I found, um, you know, is eventually they were so bad and my understanding of what the damage they were doing is I would buy sneakers, mm-hmm. you know, and as long as they, you know, I get told off, oh, I'll put the other ones on and I'll put them back on again, you know, sure. play the game. But they were mesh on the top. So if we did have something, then yeah, I'd basically have to, you know, sterilize my shoes sure. and stick them in the machine and all that stuff. So having that happy medium where, say, an EMS, EMS agency or a more proactive fire EMS agency, like, yeah, if you're just running EMS, these, you know, sneakers, these approved sneakers um, are fine for what we need. They, you know, they still look smart under your trousers. And then, you know, you get a fire, you kick them off, which is a beautiful thing about a sneaker. You can kick them off easy. Sure. A lace-up boot is a nightmare and you have to put zips in and it slows you down. Sure. Um, so yeah, total testimony there. Um, I would love to transition to call to service. Mm. So you ended up coming back from Asia, you know, you're, you're based back here in, in California. When did that idea come? And then how will you put at the helm? So obviously 2020 was a pretty challenging year for our public safety professionals and, you know, being a part of 511 means you're in front of these people, these public safety professionals, almost on a daily basis. And you get to know them and you get to know the kind of people that choose this job. And we really didn't like the way that they were being portrayed. It just it was not sitting well with us. Um, you know, 511 is a company who believe we serve those who serve us. And, you know, we were there was a conversation about what if there was a podcast that we could bring members of public safety, the military in, and really, you know, not not to, to make a pun here, but to see what's behind the shield what of those great, individuals. Someone should use that. Great play. Yeah, someone <laughs> should use that, huh? But, you know, we understand that people don't join public safety to get rich or to get famous, and they don't do it for the recognition. It's something that is within them. And it's an inherently dangerous job. It's a job that we know by the time you get to the end of that career, your body is going to be broken. We know it's a job that can lead to high levels of divorce, mental health issues. It's, it's just one of those, you, you kind of scratch your head and you think, why would anybody do this? But they do. And we feel as an organization, those people need to be celebrated. And then as the podcast kind of started developing, we're like, hey, maybe there's information very similar to what you do. Maybe we can talk to people who focus on public safety and figure out ways to optimize them and think about and talk about some issues that are not commonly talked about, like, you know, what working a 24 or 40 hour shift as a firefighter and that disruption to your sleep, what that physically does to your body and, and things like that. So our marketing team uh, and the organization said, you know what, this is what we need to do. And um, one day they just said, hey, you live close to the office. Would you be willing to to do this? And I I was a big consumer of podcasts uh, in Asia. You know, there's not a whole lot. It's a walking culture, which I love. So I didn't own a car. So everywhere I went, I had about a 45 minute to an hour walk. Um, and I would just be tearing through podcasts. And uh, I said, yes. Um, I said yes, because if I have the ability, I shouldn't say I, if the podcast has the ability to help a public safety professional, help their family, um, maybe get them to recognize a deficiency that they might be able to correct, 
then I'm all in. So that's uh, that's when we stood it up was uh, at the beginning of 2020. Beautiful. Quick tangent. How much obesity did you see in Hong Kong when it was a pedestrian community? How much what? Obesity. Uh, very little. Very, very little. I mean, and I'll be honest with you, we would go to lunch as a group, as a team, and I had customer service folks who is 100 pounds soaking wet, um, and they would eat me under the table, but not an ounce of fat. I mean, it was, and honestly, it was one of the reasons when I, when I left, I was at about 220 pounds, uh, sitting in a car, driving from department to department. I lost around 20 pounds uh, while I was over there in about the first year. And I think that had everything to do with it. You're walking the hills. Um, it, was, it, was, it was great. I enjoy it. Because where I see less obesity are beach towns, yep. where you're going to be in revealing clothing and, again, tends to be more of an active culture. Obviously, places like Colorado seem to have a lot of um, you know, healthier people. And, again, you have a very fit population, maybe more of a focus on healthier foods. But then New York City, London, you know, a lot of these places where you can't drive everywhere. You're going to walk. You're going to take subways. You're going to go up and down stairs. That's huge. You Tremendous. Know? And then you look at the Midwest, you look at Florida, we can drive everywhere. Oh, this library book, I'm just going to go drop it in this hole. Am I driving? You know, am I dry cleaning? I'm just going to drive through. The, you know, and it's, yeah. it, it just sets you up for failure. So when I think of Bath, which is the town kind of over where I went to high school, you park your car quite a long way in this park. And then you walk all day and then you finally go back to your car, you know, so that pedestrian element that you see in Amsterdam and some of these other areas, I mean, that that would be yet another great thing is maybe some of our bigger cities shut down the, the square mile in the middle, put, you know, parking around the outside or, you know, get shuttled in the park and walk. That was a big one for me is, I mean, Japan and Hong Kong, I haven't I haven't spent any time in London. They have public safety or not public safety, excuse me, public transportation down to a science. Oh, Japan. I mean, They'll push you on that train. I used oh to live man. there. They, <laughs> the white gloves. Between between <laughs> the trains, the taxis, the buses. I mean, you can be one side of Hong Kong Island to the other in 20 minutes, where even in a car, it would take you, you know, an hour. So I think that public safety, and then again, obviously owning a vehicle over there, they have parking spaces in Hong Kong selling for like 200,000 US dollars because they're in such high demand. I, I had no interest in driving. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, interesting tangent. So you had Olivia Mead on from Yoga for First Responders. I wanna give her a shout out because she was the one that really kind of reconnected us. Sure. So talk to me about that first. So I saw, I saw the introduction email with Olivia and I read Yoga for First Responders and it was one of those kind of rolled my eyes and I was like, what is this? What is this about? And I mean, you can ask Brian, our producer, and I was like, I don't know how well this thing is going to go because I don't do yoga. I'm not interested in yoga. I was on the edge of my seat for about an hour with her because everything that she said made such great sense. And I'm sitting here calling afterwards, calling buddies who are in law enforcement, like, you need to listen to this. I know it's going to sound strange, but... It makes a lot of sense. And again, she's such a, a great, great individual, you know, someone who's willing. And I and I, I, I take folks like her and I kind of put her in the same category as our public safety professionals because she's dedicating her life and profession to bettering our public safety folks. And people who recognize that 
there's always room for improvement. You know, she could be, you know, teaching yoga classes in Beverly Hills and probably making a fortune. But that focus on the public safety, I was so surprised. I walked out of here ear to ear grin saying that was a great podcast. And man, did I learn a lot. Yeah, she's amazing. Actually, I owe her. I, I told her I'd do a, um, a guided meditation. She gave me the script. It's yep. not my thing. And that was a long time ago. Okay. So I owe her that. So I need to, yeah, to get back on that. Great person. Great person. So another amazing thing that you guys did, um, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, you put together an incredible interview series on, on the podcast. And obviously there was a video portion. So talk to me about that and some of the amazing people that you were able to talk to. Yeah, that was, uh, that was something that I didn't realize how much it was going to affect me. So what we did in preparation for the 20th anniversary of September 11th, uh, our team, our media team, and myself, we flew out to New York, and we sat down with numerous uh, first responders, both FDNY, FDNY EMS, NYPD, and NYPD ESU, uh, the emergency services unit, who were there that day, and we wanted to create a mini documentary that recorded the oral history of what occurred that day through members of public safety. And we did individual interviews with, I believe, nine individuals, um, including one of our own, a very special guy by the name of Joe Dalton. Joe, uh, his entire family lineage is in law enforcement, rooted all the way back to, uh, I believe it was Scotland, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, Joe had been retired uh, for about four or five years from the emergency services unit with NYPD, September 11, 2001. And, you know, when he got the call and realized what was going on, basically left his wife crying at the door as he grabbed his gear bag and headed into the city. And he stayed there for, I want to say, at least 10 to 15 days. Um, and it just, it shows, it shows the caliber of people and, and we felt a responsibility to to highlight that, and, and it was it was tough because it was extraordinarily emotional. Um, but these are stories that need to be told. And you know, the big thing for us, and again, this is also in two thousand, you know, uh, twenty one. So one one really important thing that came out of September eleventh in two thousand and one is. We, we would never want to repeat that. We never want that to happen again. But I would kill to have a two thousand or a September twelfth. Mm -hmm. I've heard that again, a lot, especially his last eighteen months. And when you and when we were thinking about this, is you know, this could be an opportunity to remind people because that's something else that really kind of st stuck in my craw was coming out of September eleventh, two thousand one. It was always never forget, never forget. We forgot. America forgot what the men and women in public safety, you know, and then all the men and women who experienced that day and said, you know what, I'm putting my professional hopes and dreams on hold. And they went and enlisted in the military. And then they, you know, 20 years because of that one day. I mean, so for us, it was very, very important to remind people of what happened that day and and the sheer bravery and sacrifice of those individuals 
and we created the documentary. And then uh, we also released the full length interviews. You know, the documentary is about 13 minutes long, but there's about eight to nine hours of video content with uh, a variety of members of the uh, FDNY, FDNY, EMS and NYPD ESU. So when I worked for Anaheim on my rookie year, I think it was, um, my ex, my, my son's mother, she was doing extra work and she said, hey, you know, we get this you know, paper comes out every week and they're looking for real firefighters for this movie. So I ended up getting a bunch of Anaheim guys and we went on set and it was the World Trade Center movie, which told the story of the uh, Port Authority officers that survived the collapse, two of them. And you had Will, you know, one of them on the podcast. So just again, give me some background on that. You know, Will was the only guy that um, we didn't sit down with in New York. Schedules just didn't align. Uh, but I did have the uh, the privilege to speak with the two uh, ESU officers who extracted Will from the hole that he was in. And I'm I'm so glad it happened in that sequence because, you know, when you're sitting there and you're talking to these emergency services guys, you know, they barely knew each other. Um and, you know, those guys were willing to die right there to save someone who, who essentially will, will was in the worst possible situation, you know, and, 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 you know, the fact that the brotherhood that was shared and not even the same department, that was Port Authority, you know, it was just it was strange that they knew each other at all. Um, but the fact that, you know, will was only concerned about his sergeant. He was in immense pain. Uh, the recovery did so much physical damage to his body, but that just that selfless mindset and on everybody. It was one of those. If we're going, we're going together. And it's it, you, you won't see that in a boardroom. You know, you you just don't. Don't see it in a pandemic either. You definitely don't see it in a <laughs> pandemic. And. Uh, yeah, it was it was fascinating to talk to him, and he's so eloquent and so generous with his time, and he shares that story, and he's not sharing that story to self, you know, grandize him. He's he's sharing that story to let you know, and he mostly does it to public safety professionals. Things can go bad really quickly. He's like you, you know, but that never give up attitude, you know. To me, it was just I was in awe speaking with all of those individuals, absolutely in awe. Yeah. Well, I listened to both of those. And, you know, like I said, it was weird. Like I was in Long Beach with, you know, Anaheim firefighters, Long Beach firefighters. I think there's some L.A. Um, and, you know, this mock up of the World Trade. You know, there was the before the lobby that we were all in. And there was, you know, the girders of after over here. And it was just such a surreal experience. But then to hear the actual real people of, you know, what I'd seen actors portray on a movie set. Yeah was you know it was just crazy so it was the excellent conversations and i think that you know choosing you to host this apart from your awesome voice <laughs> was uh was a great idea yeah it was uh it was powerful it was powerful i uh it was one of those things i i don't know if i'd i could go through it again but i'm glad we did it i'm glad we did it and i think we i i hope i hope we did a, a good job at honoring you know the men and women who 
who sacrificed their lives that day. You did, absolutely. Thank now, you. just while we're on the subject, where can people find that to this day? You can go to the uh, the 511 Tactical YouTube page, click on videos, and it'll all be sitting there. Uh, you can watch the 13-minute doc, or as I said, there's about uh, nine hours worth of individual interviews that um, pieces of those interviews were used to construct the uh, the documentary. And the documentary is great to watch. I mean. They were they were so generous with their their time. We had the ability, you know, to to film at Ground Zero. We had the ability to you know film out on the water. Um, so definitely a great documentary. Uh, but the, there's a lot of a lot of power. I'll tell everybody, you know, bring some Kleenex if you're going to watch some of those because um, they are packed full of emotion. But the the messaging and and the the stories of of again true heroism and selflessness is it's great and i i think if uh i think uh if you have a family member within public safety definitely give it a watch absolutely well it's also a testament to you know whether it's the you know 101st talking on the banner brothers series or whether it's sure you know the the 9-11 uh you know civilians and responders 20 years later i mean it's still there yeah so when there's that still that facade of you know kind of talking about that stuff is weakness and you know suck it up look at these people these are true heroes that went through hell i mean what will endured most people would have given up a hundred percent you know and you're hearing that in their voice to this day so i think that's a a testament to of course you can heal and grow but that trauma will stay with you forever absolutely all right well i want to transition to some closing questions so i can uh, sure. let you go um, so the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Uh, so, yes, it's, it is 100 percent unrelated. Uh, it's American Kingpin. It was about the development of what's called the Silk Road and the creation of the dark web. Uh, it was one that I picked up and got through it the first time. And I was like, you know, that is fascinating. And I'm not a tech guy. Uh, in fact, I'm kind of the opposite. I usually have to call IT once a month to figure something out on my computer. But I thought it was a pretty captivating read. Brilliant. Now, what about movie and or documentary? Yeah, well, actually, I just finished a great one, 14 Peaks. Nims die. Yes. He's been on the show. Has that right? We're going to definitely try and get him on the show. That was fascinating on Netflix, folks. Uh, just, I, it, again, I just remember one of the scenes, he's like, you know, quitting is not in my blood. And he was willing to die up there with a, a fellow a climber that he didn't know. Uh, man, that was a great, great documentary. Have you seen The Alpinist? No, it's on my list, though. Watch it. Okay. That's all I'll say. Okay. I don't want to say any more. It will kind of give some stuff away. But yeah. So Nims, yeah, he was absolutely incredible. And I'll, I'll see if I can help, you know, make that connection. To. I know he's right now pausing because I mean he just went through that huge media blitz sure. but as you know you know it's when the dust settles and they're not the shiny object anymore that's the best time to, to reconnect but yeah his book is excellent as well uh do you know the name of it uh if not I'll just project possible yes that was, I think it is if I'm recalling that correctly but yeah just incredible man first Gurkha to ever join the S was the SBS or SAS I think he was SAS because he went through the army, I believe. I think you're correct. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just insane. And yeah, he, he took that, that record that was years long to do the 14 peaks before and did it in, what, less than eight months, I think it was. And what, what I really enjoyed about it is he's doing this for no other reason than to bring recognition to the Nepalese Sherpas. 
you know, and that's and, and having been to Nepal several times, just a beautiful culture. And the fact that, you know, you see all these folks, oh, it climbed Everest. It's like, yeah, you did. But there was a whole team of people that are not in that, you know, Instagram post that really deserve some credit. And I thought that was a great mission. I think it was. Was it in 14 Peaks or was it in the Alpinist? One of those two, they show the line. Waiting. Yes. It was in 14, it was 14 Peaks. Peaks. That was, you don't think of that. No. There was a traffic jam at the top of Everest of all these people waiting for their selfies so they could go back down again. Couldn't believe it. Yeah. Couldn't. That was, that was a great picture. And he took that picture, actually. Yes. Yeah, it went that was viral. Right. Yep. Yep. That's, yeah, exactly. That's kind of what really elevated his presence. Yeah. Um, all right. Brilliant. Is, so the next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? I would probably, I would probably have to say Will, if you could get him. Will Jimeno, his story, you know, I think is, it's a story that every American needs to hear. Um, I mean, I would say all of those, all of those men, but I mean, very, very inspiring individual. Um, I would, yeah, Will Jimeno for sure. Perfect. All right. Last question before we make sure we know where to find you and, and 511, um, even though you're not very present on the internet. Hence nope. my, uh, <laughs> by design, by design. <laughs> I'm like trying to do the research like shit. Um, is, uh, what do you do to decompress? Um, my decompression time is usually spending time with my significant other, uh, my family. We spend a lot of weekends together. My brothers, I uh, have a wonderful sister-in-law. That that is time where we can truly unplug. Uh, my significant other actually works for Five Eleven as well, so you can imagine that uh, our chats over dinner and you know uh, can usually lead back to the company. So you know it's always on the brain, which is fine. But when we when we can get with family or travel, we both love. You know that time we spent in Asia really just sparked my international travel bug, my internal travel bug. So the times where we can truly be together, be around other folks or get out of the country. That is usually when I am at my most relaxed. Yeah. All right. Well, for people listening that want to learn more about 511, where are the best places to find them online? You know, definitely give 511 a follow on Instagram uh, and Facebook if people are still using that. Uh, 511.com is all things 511. Uh, we have a pretty active LinkedIn profile. Um, and then YouTube. YouTube, you get some product videos, some branding videos. But uh, yeah, a quick a quick search, and you can find us, our store locations, our dealer locations. Um, yeah, that's about it. Brilliant. And just while I remember, on my trip here and my trip to the UK a few months ago, five eleven luggage, mm. awesome. Thank you. Awesome. I mean, I had some cheaper ones, these so called you know rigid turtle shell ones, yep. and come back and it looks like someone bashed them with a mallet. But with the you know is it the Kevlar that's inside the the frame? That one uh, like a, like a, a type of like a, a polyethylene board, more than likely, just a, a nice for rigidity. Okay, and like then we the, use the, Cordura on the outsides of okay. it, which yeah. is pretty strong. Uh, yeah, the, the rolling bags are great. I enjoy the hell out of those. Yeah, and even just the the carry on. That's what sure. about this trip. Yeah, with all the different you know compartments, so you can have everything in one. But like, okay, let me just have that one change of clothes while I get to the first stop. For sure. Yeah, very very impressed. Well, thank you. All right. So then, the best place to find you specifically is in, uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the best way to get a hold of me. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you, firstly, for inviting me to this awesome studio, but secondly, you know, for creating yet another, you know, amazing podcast. I mean, there's there's such a void, I think, for good information and the more good podcasts that at the core is just doing 
good things and kind of as you touched on if it helps one person it was worth it um but also for coming on the show today and being so generous with your time absolutely i mean you you were in this space far before we were and more than anything it was proof that yeah there is a listener for this and and again we don't there's no such thing as competition when it comes to creating awareness it's just about creating awareness so i really appreciate uh you having me on thank you